The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. We welcome you. We are going through the book of Acts. Those of you who haven't been with us, uh, we start chapter 1. We're going to go all the way to Acts chapter 28, Lord willing. And we're going about a section at a time, uh, not quite a chapter at a time. This historical account given from God about the early church, how it began, and uh, God blessed it and it spread. This is our heritage if you're a Christian. This is your history. This is my history. This is where it all started. It's historical. It is true. It is inspired by God and His Holy Spirit. It's a perfect account of what actually happened. It is without error. It is binding. It is authoritative. It is uh, exemplary and a model for us and how we are to serve as a church today. We are picking up in chapter 3. We're going to begin chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. And that account is a miracle. It's an amazing miracle uh, facilitated by the apostles Peter and John. The title of the sermon today is Jesus Heals a Man. Now, Jesus is not alive on earth during this story or this account. Why did I say Jesus heals a lame man? I thought it was Peter. No, Uh, Peter was the vehicle. Jesus did the healing. He explains that very specifically in the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4. We're going to see that. So Jesus did this miracle. Um, So it's an amazing thing. Unprecedented, this miracle. Actually, we're on chapter 3. We saw an amazing, unprecedented event in Acts chapter 1, which was the ascension of Jesus Christ. We saw an amazing, unprecedented event in Acts chapter 2, which was when God poured out His Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost like never before. And now in chapter 3, we're seeing an unprecedented event a miracle uh, like no other. So this is an exciting book, the book of Acts. Keeping in mind, this this is true. This is historical. It actually happened. I'm going to go ahead and start just by reading the 11 verses. Follow along with me. Jesus heals a lame man. And again, this is around the time of Pentecost. We don't know how old the church is at this point. Could be days old. Began on Pentecost. And it could be just a few weeks old. But probably not a whole lot of time has gone by when the events of chapter 3 took place for this early church, starting at verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, which was the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. And when the lame man saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright, and he began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them 
at the so-called portico of Solomon full of amazement. My English translation has the word amazement two times. This is absolutely amazing. It is amazing. I have never seen anything like this in my lifetime. I've been a Christian 30 plus years. I have never seen a miracle like this. Never witnessed it. I don't know anybody personally who's ever experienced anything like this. Absolutely amazing. I'd say unique. Uh, I divided this narrative section up just with three points to help us walk through this true story and emphasize uh, a few things, uh, points one, two, and three. And before I get to the first point, just a couple of preliminary things to keep in mind. We, we saw, if you flip back one chapter in Acts chapter two, where we were last week on the biblical church, little phrase I didn't get to camp out on, but very important in Acts 2, 43, uh, Peter, day of Pentecost, the spirit pours out on 120 believers. Peter preaches this amazing gospel sermon to thousands of people. At least 3000 responded positively and repented and believed in the gospel and were baptized. So on day one, this church is at least 3,120 people. And then they continued to meet together, it says, in homes, but also in the public area courtyard of the temple daily, day by day. This mass of believers congregating together, having fellowship, listening to the apostles teach, having worship together, eating meals together, praying together, having uh, blessed unity together. That's how Acts chapter 2 concluded. And in there, in Acts 2.43... It says, all these believers kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place. So miracles were happening. A plurality of miracles, probably many miracles on an ongoing basis, present tense. So every, all these believers, uh, were together. They saw miracles happening. Verse 43, many wonders and signs. Uh, that's how it, very specific descriptions and words used to describe these kinds of miracles. They were called wonders. They created awe. They were startling when you saw them. That word is very purposeful because, you know, it's not natural. It is of God. It's otherworldly. That was the reaction God wanted to create, a wonder, and also a sign. Very specific Greek word, meaning that the, the miracle pointed to something else greater than itself. Or the miracle pointed to something to validate it. And it says many wonders and miracles or signs were happening in the early church. Now, here's the key phrase in 43. Miracles were taking place through the apostles. Through the apostles. We live in a day and age, not just in America, but all over the world, where apparently people profess to be doing all kinds of miracles all the time, and they aren't even apostles. They're just regular old Christians. And some so-called evangelical Christians even teach that if you're a Christian, you have the ability to do miracles just like this. If the apostles did it, you can do it. It's the same God, after all, all throughout history. So every Christian has this potential. Now, that's a very rampant, common teaching, but it's totally contrary to Scripture and what we see here in the book of Acts. It says the miracles were happening through the apostles. Through the apostles. That's consistent all throughout the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, it goes on, the church grows some more a few weeks later. More people are added to the church. Summary statement, Acts chapter 5, verse 12 says, And at the, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place. So it is the apostles who did miracles. Not just any old Christian. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says, 
This is the Apostle Paul writing decades after the church had started and been established. And through the Spirit of God, the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle, the marks or the credentials of a true apostle. There were few apostles, limited apostles, and only for a time early on in the church. The marks of a true apostle, the credentials of a true apostle, were that they performed among you signs, wonders, and miracles. Not every Christian would be able to do this. As a matter of fact, very few Christians would be able to do this. So the apostles were given this ability to do signs, wonders, and miracles. Not just every Christian. And miracles were the mark of an apostle. And also, if you, we, the sermon that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, uh, in verse 22, in this sermon, Jesus said, as he's preaching the gospel about Jesus, he says, you Jews, you remember Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs, which God performed through him. So Jesus had the ability to do miracles as the God-man to validate his ministry, to validate the word that he preached, to validate that he came from God, and to validate that he represented the Father. He passed the baton on, on to the 12 apostles. And that's why the apostles had this ability and no one else. Because the apostles, apostle means uh, a representative of a higher authority. They represented Jesus. They would continue Jesus' ministry. They would receive divine revelation as Jesus received divine revelation. The apostles would do miracles to validate their preaching ministry the same way Jesus did. So they are simply replicating what Jesus did. Normal saints don't do that. That is not God's intention. I, I've been, like I said, I've been a believer about 30 years. I've never done a miracle. Although I did, I was in a talent show in high school and I was a magician. And oh, anyway, that's a different story. Um, but I've never done a miracle, can't do a miracle. I am not an apostle. And when I say miracle, I mean these kinds of miracles, signs, wonders, and mighty deeds, because we're going to talk about how God does miracles today. We'll address that later, but in a different way. So the ability to do this kind of a miracle, to uh, raise up a man born lame, that was rare. As a matter of fact, in the book of Acts, we're going to find 28 chapters in the early church. We're going to find that miracles are rare in the book of Acts. They're not normative. As a matter of fact, all throughout the Bible, miracles are not normative. There's only certain pockets of history where they occur. It's always in keeping with new revelation that God wanted to verify for his people. In the book of Acts, here's this is important. In the book of Acts, miracles only happen in the presence of an apostle. In the book of Acts, miracles only happen, as, as far as they're recorded, in the presence of an apostle and usually by an apostle only. The exception is Philip, and he's like an associate of the apostles. Miracles were a sign validating the teaching of the apostles. This is kind of a theology of miracles. We need to know this as we go into this because this can be very confusing if we don't understand the biblical background and context and God's purpose. By the way, this is kind of interesting. There were apostles and prophets in the early church laying the foundation of the church. The Old Testament has prophets all throughout uh, redemptive history, even in the very beginning. Noah and even before Noah, there were prophets, but... Miracles were not even a mark or credential of a prophet. There were most of the apostles had a prophetic ministry and never did miracles. So even signs, wonders, and mighty deeds weren't even a necessary mark of a prophet of God, even though they received divine revelation. So the point is, uh, in the book of Acts, for the most part, these kinds of miracles are limited to the apostles. We don't have apostles today. 
but it was to validate their revelation they were getting from God immediately, which they ended up preserving written for us in the Bible. So do we have miracles today? Yes, it's in the Bible. Do we have apostles today? Yeah, they're in the Bible. And it's true. It's God's living word. As a matter of fact, uh, as we go through the book of Acts, you're going to see that very few miracles are even described. Now, the apostles did many miracles, and the people witnessed it, but only few are described in the book of Acts. Peter's ministry is described from Acts chapter 1 all the way up to chapter 15. 15 chapters of history on the Apostle Peter, and only three of his miracles are even described. This one, and then two brief ones in Acts chapter 9. Then there's the Apostle Paul. He's introduced in Acts chapter 8, and he's carried on, his ministry is covered all the way to 28, and in that huge 20-plus chapters of material, only a handful of Paul's miracles are actually described. So miracles are rare and done usually only by the apostles. So we need to keep that in mind. Also, a corollary truth we need to keep in mind before we delve into the text here is ask, okay, so if, you know a lot of miracles were done according to Acts 2, 43, through the hands of the apostles. Uh, then how, if so many miracles were done, how come we don't find more and more miracles all throughout the book of Acts described? you got this one right here. A, a layman is healed, but after that... Uh, there's slim pickings when it comes to describing miracles that are actually done and detailed for us. Why did God choose? Up to this point in Acts chapter 3, uh, Peter and the other apostles had done all kinds of miracles apparently right there in Jerusalem. But for some reason, God's Holy Spirit prompted Luke to record this one. Why do we find this miracle recorded right here in the book of Acts in chapter 3 right after Pentecost? Well, I believe it has to do with God's theme throughout the rest of the book of Acts and throughout Christian history, here's what I believe based on the context of the whole book of Acts. This specific miracle is chosen at this specific time because Acts chapter 3 is transitional in the book of Acts. Uh, There is a, a marked change that takes place starting with this miracle for the rest of the book. If I were to ask you, what would that change be? Well, here's the answer. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, and Luke gives a summary of the early church from the day of Pentecost up until chapter 3, verse 1. So maybe it's been a month. A month has gone by. New believers, they got 4,000 maybe by this time people in the church. They're meeting in homes, and they're also meeting in the temple on a daily basis. And so, and then Luke describes and summarizes what the early church was like in those first days and maybe first weeks. And here's what he said. I mean, it was bliss. It was like the honeymoon. Because all the description is all just positive. They got together, they received the word, they were baptized, they joined the church, verse 42. These early Christians, they were continually, this is chapter 2, verse 42. All the Christians were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, the breaking of bread, to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, all these believers. Many signs and wonders were taking place through the apostle, verse 44. And all those who had believed, all the Christians at the time, they were together. There was just this unparalleled unity in the church we'd never seen before. It's never been replicated. So they were together and they had to get this all things in common. So the emphasis here is on this unparalleled unity the early Christians had. Verse 45, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all. Everyone is sharing. Everyone's being sacrificial. Everyone's needs are being met. Everybody is getting along. There is no negative descriptions whatsoever throughout this entire passage. 
as anyone might have need. Verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. Their thinking was the same. Their thinking was on the right priorities. The Lord Jesus Christ, his glory, salvation in him. That was the priority. That's what knit their hearts together. They had the right priorities in their thinking. They weren't self-centered and selfish. That's why I have this supernatural preserving harmony in the Holy Spirit. Day by day, continuing with one mind. This is thousands of people. That is a miracle. One mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together. Get this with gladness, with just joy, joy in the Lord, joy in fellowship, joy with other believers. I've actually never seen a church like this. Almost perfect harmony. Gladness, joy, sincerity of heart, praising God. And get this. This is the kicker, beginning of verse 47. And praising God, beautiful worship, and having favor with all the people. What does that mean? They had a good reputation. They had favor with all the people. That means surrounding people in Jerusalem who hadn't joined the church yet, surrounding people in Jerusalem where they were, people who weren't even believers. There was nobody opposing their ministry or religion at this point. There is no hint of opposition or persecution. There's no hint of division in the church or among the people. But mostly that phrase, they had favor with all the people. There is absolutely no opposition whatsoever to this movement. Now, that makes sense. Who's running the show? The Sadducees and Pharisees who hated Jesus, they killed him, got rid of him. They thought, boom, deed is done. All of his you know, followers, they bailed, and they're gone. They're in secret. We haven't heard from them in months. And that's true. The apostles, they were hiding out. They were quiet. Jesus said, stay in Jerusalem. Wait, wait, wait till the Spirit comes. And so almost two months goes by. And you can imagine the leadership in uh, Jerusalem the Jewish leadership, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, those who hated Jesus and wanted to stomp out his movement, probably thought they were successful. And so a month of silence goes by. Oh, this is cool. Forty days goes by. Uh, we did it. We were successful. Maybe even almost two months goes by. And then all of a sudden, the day of Pentecost happens, and then 3,000 people get sold and, and saved, and then they are meeting at the temple day by day. And you can imagine, all of a sudden, these Christians, are, are and a news about them is trickling around in Jerusalem, around the temple, and the leaders in Jerusalem, the leaders of the temple, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, no doubt they were hearing this. They were catching wind. Wait, what What in the world is going on? Followers of Jesus? Again? Where are they coming from? We stomped them out. And it begins to grow. But there is no hint of that in the end of Acts chapter 2. But with this miracle, which is unprecedented... A lame man, everybody knew him. He was at the temple every day. He was over 40 years old. He was lame from birth. And he was daily in front of the largest gate that went into the temple. Everybody saw him. Everybody knew him. So the leadership definitely knew who he was. And then they hear that this guy gets healed. They end up seeing the fact that this guy get healed. They can't believe it. Uh, the Jewish leadership, they are not rejoicing and praising God and celebrating and encouraging the man and worshiping God as a result and thanking those who helped him. They, they are furious that this miracle takes place. And they want to stop it. They want to shut it down. And so persecution is introduced into the early church. The second 
uh, beginning of Acts chapter 4 and for the rest of the book in every single chapter of Acts. There is opposition to the gospel. There is persecution of believers. And it continues from Acts chapter 4 all the way to 28 and get this all throughout church history, even in to this day and in, in your life if you're a believer. Because that's what God said. Philippians chapter 1. You're called not only to believe on him, but to suffer for his sake. Jesus promised his apostles before he left in John 15. He said, the world hates you. And he gave the reason why. The world hates you because they hated me first. If you believe in me and follow me, the world is going to hate you. And then, that's, so John wrote that gospel, uh, echoing the words of Jesus spoken in 30 AD. And then at the end of John's life, 60 years later, John writes in his, his little epistle, first John, and he has to remind Christians, hey, Hey, guys, is there enduring persecution from Roman emperors? Hey, don't be surprised. And that's what he says. Do not be surprised, brethren. John says this. 60 years later. Do not be surprised if the world hates you. Thank you, John. And I'll just tell you. If you watch the news, you see persecution of Christians. In your workplace, there's derision towards the fact of you as a Christian or just Christianity in general. Do not be surprised. Jesus promised this. If you love him, the world will hate you. As a matter of fact, count yourself blessed. Let's go ahead and look at uh, now the narrative, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And point number one is uh, the request of the layman regarding this miracle. The, the layman's request, and it, what was his request? Give me money. Give me money. He wasn't looking for a miracle. He wasn't looking for healing. So look at verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour of the hour of prayer. So this is like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Apparently, according to the book of Leviticus, there were probably either two or three times a day designated where the priests would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. So they'd take an animal, slaughter the animal, kill the animal, uh, burn the animal, and the smoke goes up and they pray to Yahweh, and that represents uh, forgiveness uh, by Yahweh as God must... Uh, Death is required for sin. Blood must be shed. And so that's what the sacrifices represented. Uh, and so that was going on in the temple, uh, even with the death of Jesus. Apparently they repaired maybe the, who knows what they did with the inner curtain that tore when Christ got crucified. But the temple worship did not stop. It continued even after Jesus died and was buried and rose again. So they kept doing it. And as a matter of fact, it's interesting, the early believers, Peter and the apostles, they didn't stop going to temple. We have every reason to believe from the New Testament and the book of Acts Peter and the apostles continued to go to the temple and be a part of the sacrificial system. Except their attitude and perspective had changed. They're going there for sacrifice. And as the lamb or bird or whatever is being sacrificed, Peter, John, they know this is now a memorial. We know that this is a picture of the Messiah. The apostle Paul, same thing. He continued to practice his Judaism all throughout his ministry. Celebrating all the feast days, going to the temple, taking an Nazarite vow. So that's just kind of interesting. The big transition hadn't happened yet. The temple was not destroyed. So they're being faithful Jews in accordance with Old Testament law, knowing that Jesus fulfilled all that was required. So there's Peter and John. Peter and John, by the way, they were the closest of friends. Um, Peter and John, many times through the Gospels, are, they've known each other many, many years. They grew up together in the same region, same area, same occupation. They were fishermen. Uh, they, they got introduced to Jesus about the same time. Uh, they ran to the tomb together the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So Peter and John, Peter and John, they were part of the inner circle. 
just the closest of brothers in the Lord and a great compliment to one another. Very strong men too. Uh, John was called the son of one of, he was the sons of thunder, James and John. He was not a sissy. He was a big, strong, probably fisherman, hard work. And then there's Peter, who was a man's man as well. Bold, courageous, fearless. And now filled with the spirit even more so in a good way. So here are these very bold apostles, Peter and John, going to the temple together at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, going up for prayer. And then they're, they're, going, they're going to enter through the, what's called the beautiful gate. It's on, today, if you go to Israel, there's a huge wall called the Western Wall. That wasn't part of the temple, but it's on the outskirts of the temple. And then on the other side is, was the Eastern Wall. And that one isn't standing today, but there's foundation stones still in that place. So many people entered on the eastern side uh, going into the temple and the eastern side had the large, there were many gates to enter into the temple proper area from the courtyards and one of the favorite gates was called the beautiful gate because it was the biggest gate opening, uh, probably 75 feet high and who knows, 50 plus feet wide. So it was a massive gate opening and then the gate itself, according to Josephus and others, was made out of uh, brass and even some gold, and apparently took like 20 men just to open it and close it. So this was a massive gate. It was beautiful, too, in terms of its the way it was uh, decorated. And so it was a favorite gate, and that's where people went. So that's probably the most congested gate in terms of going in uh, every single day of the Jews, going in to do their religious service. And so here is this man who was born lame, verse 2, and a man who had been born lame from his mother's womb, uh, Acts chapter, uh, the next chapter 4 tells us that he was 40 years old. He was older than 40 years old. So this man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along. So there were people, it had to be four plus men carrying him and they were doing it every day. So these guys were in on it. This was like a racket. This was a way to make money. And you, you played on people's, uh, their guilt and their religion. Uh, by the way, probably most of the people attending temple at this time were religious Jews who were legalistic as it was run by the Pharisees. And they, they believed in works righteousness. And do, 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 the more you do. And if you give alms, you earn forgiveness of God. And if you give some alms, God is pleased with you. And if you give money to the poor, God likes that. And there were even mandates from the Pharisees to give to the poor. And so you got at the most congested place going into the temple. You've got all these people who are thinking religiously going to get forgiveness and appeasement from a holy God. And so, yeah, they're going to throw uh, some money into the coffer on the way, making themselves feel good and be appeased. And maybe God will like me more. This guy was smart, this lame man. And with his buddies with him. So this man had been born lame from his mother's womb, was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day strategically at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful. It's the best place to be, most strategic. This is where we're going to bring in the cash and prey on people's feelings and guilt. What did he do there? Well, the same thing every day. He was in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple, and no doubt many complied. And so on this date, that man is expecting the same thing, and those who are carrying him are expecting the same thing. We're gonna, I wonder how much we're going to make today. Well, something was going to change and be a little different. Verse 3, there's Peter and John, the apostles. When, when the beggar saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms, alms for the poor, alms for the poor. And so he gets Peter and John's attention. And verse 4, 
Peter turns around. Peter, along with John, both of them together, they fix their gaze on the lame man, on the beggar. You know, it says the same thing Paul did in, uh, I think it's uh, chapter 14 of Acts. Fixed his gaze upon the beggar, which is very interesting because how do you uh, deal with a beggar when you don't want to give him money when he's coming after you? You don't fix your gaze on him, right? You don't get eye contact. You look away. You pretend like you don't see him or hear him, right? Think of your strategy. Oh, how can I get out of here? How can I avoid him? I'll go this way. Peter and John, no. They fixed their gaze right on this beggar who was expecting money. When he saw Peter and John, uh, then Peter and John, they fixed their gaze on him and they said, look at us. Peter speaking with authority. Peter was amazing, by the way. Uh, just to note, Peter was a transformed, changed man. He was a believer before Christ died and rose again from the dead. But after the day of Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, it said that Peter was filled with the Spirit. Two times it says that. He was filled with the Spirit. Acts chapter 4 says he was filled with the Spirit. Three times the book of Acts specifically says Peter was filled with the Spirit. And then you watch his life, his powerful preaching, his fearless courage, his boldness for Christ, his willingness to be beaten with rods, go to jail for the name of Christ. And in the end, to die for Christ. I'd say Peter was an exemplary Apostle and faithful martyr to the end. Who are the greatest Christians in the history of the church? You can't do any better than saying Peter, James, and John, and Paul. Jesus will make that determination, but Peter apparently does get God's commendation because in Revelation chapter 21, in the new heaven that's coming, the new heavenly city, that is eternal, that all believers will be with God forever. It's a real place. It is physical. It's beautiful. It is flawless. It is perfect. It has streets of gold, it says. It has real gates. It has foundation stones where the walls are in these heavenly, massive, towering walls. And it has 12 foundation stones. Foundation. It is there permanently and forever, put there by God Almighty himself. And it says there are 12 foundation stones. And on the name, uh, on, on the foundation stones are etched the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, etched there, no doubt, by Almighty God Himself. That's quite a commendation from God. And, and Peter's name is going to be on one of these stones in the heavenly city forever. That's what God thinks of Peter. One of the most faithful servants Christ has ever known. And here is this obedient, submissive servant named Peter. And he says, look at us to the, the lame man in verse five. And he began to give, uh, the lame man began to give attention to Peter, expecting to receive something from them, expecting to give, gimme, gimme, gimme. So that's the request. It's give me money. This man, the, the scripture makes uh, emphatic verse five, that this lame man is not expecting anything other than money. He is not expecting a miracle, but go to point number two. Verse 6, the response. After the request is the response. That's the response of the apostles. Also the response of the man who gets healed, by the way. What is the response of the apostles? It's rise and walk. That is the command of Peter. Peter said in verse 6, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Walk and seizing him by the hand, he raised him up. And immediately uh, the lame man's feet and his ankles were strengthened. And with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered into the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. This is amazing. This is amazing. Peter was an apostolic, legitimate, bona fide faith healer but he wasn't a faith healer he's just a healer on behalf of jesus but we do have faith healers today 
And if you compare your typical well-known faith healer today and contrast that with Peter, they're the very antithesis. Because look what Peter said. I do not possess silver or gold. I don't have any money. That is not true of most faith healers today. They got a lot of it. Not only that, he's actually able to do an instantaneous miracle. And these faith healers today, they don't do miracles. Not like this. If you watch very carefully, if you're discerning, they're healing lower back pain, which you cannot see. Post-nasal drip, that was one. It's been repeated. Seriously, not kidding. Those kind of miracles that you're kind of watching on television or whatever. Wait, serious? Was that a miracle? I didn't see anything happen. I didn't see anything change. It's not obvious. It seems set up. It seems strategic. It seems planned. It seems orchestrated. It can't be validated. That, that is not like the miracles that the apostles did. And here's a perfect example. Probably the most obvious sick person in the entire city of Jerusalem, and God decides to heal him through Peter. Peter didn't heal him, by the way. Jesus healed him in the name of Jesus Christ, because uh, that's what Peter said. In the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of the living person, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings, Savior of the worlds, judge of the earth, who is sovereign over all in his name and by his power at his discretion, he heals you. Peter knew that because he was directed by the spirit to do this miracle at this time on behalf of God. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, that's also the mark of a faithful man of God and servant of God, apostle Pastor, elder, teacher is they're always putting Jesus's name first. They don't want a claim and accolades for themselves. We're servants of Jesus. Not follow me. Follow Pastor Cliff. I don't want anybody following me. Because I will lead you astray many times in terms of just practical living. I want you to follow Jesus. And that's what we all need to do. And so Peter does that. It's amazing. So. Peter does this miracle. He does it in the name of Jesus. It is unprecedented. It is public. People see it. They are amazed. They are in awe. People come streaming from all over the place. A massive crowd of thousands of people surrounds Peter and this lame man. And then Peter preaches another sermon. And then he's going to get arrested by the Jewish leadership and thrown in jail, kept in jail, Peter and John, for an entire day. Then he goes before court the next day. And then they have a trial. They render a verdict. They consult one another. What do we do with these two guys? The miracle is true. It's apparent. It's undeniable. Well, we better shut them up. And it says, after all that, over 24 hours of time has taken place, it says that the leadership looked at them a little more closely and listened to Peter talk and said, now, whoa, wait a minute. It says they began to recognize them as Galileans and began to finally recognize that, hey, they were associated with Jesus. That entire time, they don't even know Peter's name. The point is, Peter didn't care. Peter didn't want his name known. This miracle was done in the name of Jesus the Lord. Jesus did the miracle. Seizing him by the hand, raised him up, not because he had to. This guy was instantaneously healed. Instantaneously healed. He was born lame in his feet and his legs from the womb for over 40 years. And instantaneously, in the name of Jesus, God does a miracle. And it says in the middle of verse 7, immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. You know what that means? That is, that is a creative miracle. This is not natural. This is supernatural. This is of God. This is uh, can't be replicated by humans. This has nothing to do with medicine this is a creative miracle of God. 
creating new sinews and bones and everything else that needed to happen. Not only that, on top of that miracle of creating all that needed to be there to make it happen, is you need to learn to walk. You know, babies, they don't come out born and walking around. That would be terrible. But anyway, um, babies learn to walk. We have to learn to walk. People who go through rehabilitation need to learn to walk. This man never walked over 40 years, and not only could he stand up by himself. You ever watch a baby deer gets born or baby horse? they got to learn to walk. This guy gets healed, never walked before, stands up, and he knows what to do automatically. He starts, he stands, mission accomplished. He starts walking, mission accomplished. And then he starts jumping and leaping all over the place. Balance intact. This is awesome. What an amazing miracle. Verse 8, with a leap, with a leap, with a leap. The book of Isaiah said that the Messiah would heal people, that they would run around like leaping deers. With a leap. He stood upright and began to walk. He entered the temple with Peter and John. <laughs> These guys healed him. He is staying with them the whole time. So that he was clinging to them. Clinging to them with just utter joy. No doubt drawing attention. You know, that's what God wanted. God wanted a big crowd to come around Peter and John because he's going to give them the gospel. That's what the miracle was for. Miracles were to validate the ministry of the apostles. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Just some reminders about this miracle that make it distinct and unique from phony pseudo-miracles, so-called, that people say they're accomplishing today. And they're not. This miracle was supernatural. This miracle was sovereign. It was at God's discretion. That's true all throughout the world. God doesn't always do a miracle. He does it. uh, He is selective in when he wants to do a miracle and whom he's going to do it. And this is true here. So miracles of God are supernatural. They are sovereign. By God, it is his choice, it is his prerogative, at his initiative, his selectivity. This miracle is sudden, it was totally unexpected, it wasn't based on this guy's faith. Faith healers will say that, well, you didn't have enough faith to believe. This miracle has nothing to do with this guy's faith. This is God's choice. He was just expecting a few bucks. So it's supernatural, sovereign, uh, sovereign sudden, it is complete he is completely, totally, it's not progressive and, oh, your lower back's better. And I, I know you still walk with a limp, but, you know, maybe over time and a little Tylenol, you'll feel better. No, this is absolutely complete. He is totally whole. Also, very important, this miracle is visible. It's visible. It could be seen. It could be validated. That's why it's called a sign. That is a Greek word for a miracle by Jesus and the apostles. Same man, sign, something that you can see and verify with the five senses, which is in keeping with the Old Testament. Validating truth with the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is not a, a, a hearsay miracle. Like we have, we have plenty of those today. Oh, so and so does miracles. Oh, I saw, or saw, I heard about a miracle. Out there on the Mishfield, and I heard about this miracle. Well, I've never seen, I've heard about a lot of them, I've never seen one. But the miracles of Jesus were visible, they were public many times, so they could be validated, they could be verified, they could be seen, they could be witnesses. Jesus said, you are my witnesses. Uh, that's how you validate truth. Amazing. So that's the response. And then finally, the reaction from this miracle by the people. Verses 9 through 11. What was the reaction? It's public. It's at the temple midday. It's when it would be most populated. Then they entered into the gate. So now they're kind of in the temple proper area where more and more the leadership is going to be there too. They're not hiding over in a corner. You got this. So they go in the temple. You're supposed to be all holy and religious and somber and quiet. And here's Peter and John walking. And they got this guy hooting and hollering, jumping up. Yippee! Praise the Lord! Making a scene, probably. So no doubt, people turning heads. Whoa. What? Who's that guy? What in the world's going on? Wait. 
Hey, that's the lame. He can't walk. Why, why is he jumping up and down? Why is he on Peter's back screaming and hollering? Making a scene. And that's why it says in verse 9, uh, so the reaction, what just happened? That's kind of a consensus by the people. Verse 9, all the people, all the people that were there saw him walking and praising God. Verse 10, and they were taking note of him. So it's like they looked and then they're focusing in, zeroing in, very deliberate. Their, their gaze fixed upon, wait, is that really the lame guy? Or is that somebody else that looks like, really? That means taking note, very specific, very particular, getting close. It's like people that want to watch a car accident or something spectacular. And you stop, you drop everything, and then you focus in, and then you start walking in, and that's what these people are doing. And that no doubt congestion is building up, because you're supposed to you know, keep the line going. You know, here's your sacrifice, here's your duck, here's your, I mean, your pigeon and your whatever, and you give it to the priest and go. This is going to create problems. And all the people saw him walking, praising God, and they were taking note of him as, as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were, and as a result, when they, they realize and it registers, yes, indeed, that is the lame man. He was over 40 years old. He's begged from me before. What, is he a liar? He said he couldn't walk. What's up with that? So, but for the most part, they realized something supernatural had happened, and that's why it says at the end of verse 10, they were filled with wonder, and the Greek word is awe. That is before they knew something supernatural just happened. There is no natural explanation for this. That's why it's the word awe. They were filled with, in other words, awe overcame them. Now it's going beyond the intellect. They were overcome with awe and amazement is the Greek word in verse 10. Ecstasis, ecstatic at what had happened to him. Many of them, no no doubt, were utterly afraid. They had fear. They had awe. They were overcome. There's no explanation. And so they all start converging in on Peter and John and the layman. Verse 11 says, while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them. And so what happened was Peter and John probably went and they did their service and made their sacrifice or whatever. Then they left the temple, went back out the beautiful gate. Then they took a right and went over to this huge, massive outdoor courtyard that was covered with a roof and uh, two rows of massive 40-foot-tall pillars of, made of white marble called Solomon's Porch or Portico. It was probably almost 50 feet long. So a great place to have a fellowship meal. They go over there in that massive courtyard that can accommodate hundreds and hundreds of people. This is where Jesus taught in John chapter 10 and probably many other times. That was probably a favorite teaching place of Jesus outside the temple in the courtyard on Solomon's Porch. Remnants of Solomon's porch are still there today. At least the foundation. So that's where John and Peter go. That's probably where the early church was meeting because they're going to meet there again in Acts chapter 5 with hundreds and hundreds of believers. And that's where John and Peter, hey, let's go. Let's go meet with the believers and let's have a time of prayer and we'll teach the word and preach. And so they're doing that. And this uh, layman is following them. He's clinging on to them. And so they let him come along. So the crowd, in wonder, follows Peter and John over there to the courtyard. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together, ran, pulling up their robes, dropping their business. We've got to go find out what's going on. Ran together to them, uh, to the so-called portico of Solomon, and they were full of amazement and utter awe. And like I said, probably... 
many had fear. Many had fear. And at this time, uh, some of the leadership gets involved of, of the Jews that are in opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so next we're going to pick up. So what happens from here? Well, God's intent was to do a miracle, to validate the ministry, the teaching ministry of the apostles. And that is exactly what's going to happen. God draws a crowd of hundreds, probably thousands of people. And Peter Peter preaches another amazing Christ-centered, gospel-driven, spirit-empowered sermon about the Lord Jesus Christ. Who alone is the one who can give forgiveness of sin and eternal life? And unlike the first time he did it, when it says nothing but positive, 3,000 souls believed and got baptized. Some did believe and some get baptized. But that is not uh, the universal response. There are some who respond with utter anger and outrage because Peter invoked the name of Jesus. And Peter's going to end up in jail as a result. So with that, uh, just a couple of summary statements uh, from this narrative passage that, that we can be reminded of as uh, believers that we can benefit from, from a story like this. Um, we need to remember that we need to vet everything we hear being taught today in the name of Jesus Christ. We need to vet everything through the Bible. And that includes the, the charismatic movement and the, the healing movement and all that stuff. And, and take it and scrutinize it with Scripture. Does it match? Does it match up? Is it consistent with the apostles' doctrine? Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. And have nothing to do with any form of evil. First Thessalonians 5. Also, uh, I don't want to disparage or downplay miracles because God is the same God all throughout history, right? The same God who brought the creation into existence out of nothing but his word and did it in a moment, did it in a, a millisecond. That's the same God. We know it's the same God we serve. So does God do miracles today? Absolutely, yes. He does. Not like this. There are no apostles running around, even though some claim to be, but God is still doing miracles. So we do have miracles today. We have miracles recorded in the Bible. They are legitimate, and this is God's living word, so they still serve as a testimony for the truth of Christianity today. Somebody wants a miracle? I can open up my Bible, and I'll, re I'll read you the great, one of the greatest miracles of all. It's the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on that basis, repent and believe and be saved. So it's a miracle that is still intact and binding. As a matter of fact, Paul said in Acts 17, that miracle, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is still valid, so much so that every soul at the end of the age will be judged in light of that miracle, the resurrection of Christ. In addition to that, we have other miracles. We have modern-day miracles. Every answered prayer that is truly an answer to prayer, I believe, is a miracle answer. It's a miracle. Here's finite, fallen, sinful me, and I pray to the sovereign, eternal infinite, holy God of the universe, and I make a request, forgiveness of sin or whatever it is, or wisdom, and he answers, that is supernatural action. That's miraculous. That is amazing. James 5 also says that God, at his prerogative, is willing to answer prayers regarding healing, if he so chooses. And the greatest miracle of all today, for us, practically speaking, is every time a sinner becomes a saint. Right? Only God can change a human being on the inside. Salvation. Becoming born again. A matchless miracle. And they happen all the time. Every saved soul is evidence that God is real. 
God is alive and God is true to his word and that Jesus is Savior. And my last point for all of us as Christians is expect opposition. If you're a Christian, expect opposition. Maybe it's not death and being thrown in jail or being beaten, but maybe it's a verbal opposition. Maybe it's being ostracized. Maybe it's just you seeing your faith uh, criticized from a distance or from afar. Or biblical truth being compromised. Uh, uh, genders being absolutely, utterly distorted. Uh, blaspheming God today. That, that's persecution. That's opposition to the sacred truth. We believe in God's word. Expect opposition. As I already reminded us from Philippians chapter 1. where We're called not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. And then to end on a good note, Jesus said, Count yourself blessed of the Father any time. You are considered worthy of persecution. Worthy of suffering for the great name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have your reward. With that, let's go ahead and now we have the privilege of having communion, celebrating the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table together. And so that if you know Jesus Christ, personally, then you are Invited to partake and participate with us. I want to just read from Acts chapter, I mean, uh, 1 Corinthians 11. And uh, if our ushers, you can go ahead and get placed. When the plate comes to you, if you're going to take communion today, um, you just take one cup. I think it's got both the, the bread and the, the drink in it. And then hold on to it because then we'll all take together. Just a brief reminder of the purpose of Communion. We had a baptism, a couple of baptisms last week. Those are living reminders of the work that God's already done in the life of people. So they're symbolic and they're memorial. They remind us of what God has already done. And that same thing with communion. Paul says in First Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and that's why we have bread going around. Uh, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. When he gave thanks, Eucharisto is the Greek word, Eucharist. He broke the bread and he said, this is my body or symbolizes my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Every time you take communion with bread, uh, we remember the Lord Jesus, how he lived for us a perfect life and how he died for us sacrificially. We celebrate that. That's how we have forgiveness of sin and a relationship with a holy God by the work of Jesus Christ. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And that's verse, um, this is the new covenant in my blood, verse 25. Do this as often as you drink it, so do it regularly and do it in remembrance of me. So in just a moment when we take it together, first and foremost, just we're doing this. Remember the Lord Jesus, if you know him, uh, that he's your savior, that he, he saved you, that you know him, that he is your Lord, he's your savior, he's your older brother, he's someone you can go to all the time. And he said he'd never leave you or forsake you. Just It's supposed to be a time of... Utter total worship and encouragement in the Lord Jesus Christ and the unparalleled relationship we have with him individually. That's what this is all about. It's a time of really celebration and also examination. God, forgive me of my sin and we evaluate our own hearts. That's why we're called to do verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of Jesus. In other words, don't take it flippantly and also don't do it without realizing once again that, that we are sinners, we deserve nothing, and everything good that we have and everything blessed that we have comes from the Lord 
Jesus as a, as a gift. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for that great truth. Verse 28, but a man or woman, every believer needs to examine themselves and in so doing, he's to eat in the bread and drink the cup. So that's what I'm going to have us do in just a second. We're going to take this together. And while you're waiting, just, you know, you can close your eyes or pray on your own. Talk to the Lord. Uh, have the Holy Spirit examine your heart, examine your life. And we'll give you just a moment of time of meditation before him. But the Lord Jesus said, uh, do this in his remembrance. So let's go ahead and eat and drink after him. Before I pray, uh, we want to prepare our hearts. We have one last song we're going to sing, and um, as we're singing that last song, the ushers uh, will have uh, the plate going around, and this special offering we have four times a year, usually for benevolence. Uh, This one we are designating just for our general fund, so if you're able uh, to contribute to that, uh, God bless you, and... uh, God, may God go before you with his Holy Spirit this day. Go ahead and let's pray together. We commit our day to the Lord. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for these dear saints. We thank you for the church. We thank you for our local church. We also thank you for your word, God. Just this amazing story, 2,000 years old. Every word of it true encouraging, amazing, accomplished by you. I thank you for the great privilege that we can know the same Jesus who did this miracle personally through the gospel. Thank you for ongoing forgiveness we have in your name. Thank you for adopting us into the family of God and keeping us secure. Thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit. And now, God, we commit this day and our week to you, asking that you would go before us Hold us near to you, all for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.